Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you might not necessarily expect. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we are in particular really delving into this idea of conversations and what happens within them. So if you're a fan of the show, you'll be familiar with the presence of linguistics on this podcast. Um, and we're delving into that discipline again today. And, and I'm doing it because the workplace and work itself revolves around talk and conversation. And therefore, what happens in talk and conversation really, really matters. Now, those, those conversations might be in meetings, they might be in one-to-ones, they might be over kind of coffee or tea in, in, in cafes or um, you know, kind of communal areas within workplaces. Um, all of the time, though, we're, we're putting together words to communicate a message. But actually, we're not putting together, we're, we are putting together words, but we put together more than words to communicate a message. And um, I really want to kind of get into some of the detail of all that today. So because our, our guest is such a specialist with words and non-words and signs and really small bits of talk, um, I'm very conscious about um, speaking. So I've just said, um, and now like in my head, I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, no, I've said, um, and I can't do that. Anyway, so let's welcome our guest onto you. So let's welcome to the podcast, Dr. Emily Hofstetter. Hello, Emily. How are you? Hello. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks very much. Good, good, good. So as per usual then for this podcast, we open with an innocuous yet unexpected question. So I have pre-warned Emily that I'm going to ask her a question, but she doesn't know what that question is. So my, um, my unexpected yet innocuous question for today is, tell me about a walk that you've really enjoyed. Oh, you've asked the right person about that. Um, Oh, really? Okay. uh, I love walking. Walking is one of my favorite things to do. Um, And sort of from my PhD onwards, it's kind of become my main form of exercise. And I try to build my day around a walk. And so everyone here bicycles um, and is really confused why a lot of the time I'm really happy to just leave my bicycle at home um, and walk, even though it takes two to three times as long. Um, because I just really like it and I'll walk and I listen to podcasts. Uh, okay. uh, and then I, my walk here, I go from town and then I go through a forest where I take off the podcast and I just listen to the forest for about the 20 minutes that it takes to get through there and bird watch. And sometimes there's deer and it's just, it's fabulous. And I do it twice a day, every day. And it's so great to watch the forest change and see the leaves change and everything go from really really loud uh bird calls in the spring through to what's now almost silent in the fall and um it's really really fantastic so i mean just sort of every day that's perfect um and then recently we we did a hike for eight hours or so sort of in a, a eight hours area. yeah yeah it's not that long we're, we're, we're also not super fit so i mean um, wow. it, it took us probably longer than the recommended plus we took breaks and had tea because we bring tea everywhere and uh, just we could see over the the bay uh, of a nearby town and there were lingonberries everywhere that we could just eat as we walked and yeah it was great wow, wow. <laughs> so where, where in the world are you then so good, oh so I, i'm in because you uh, painted Sweden. a wonderful picture that, so yeah you painted a wonderful picture so i thought it would be good it might be good for the listener to kind of get an idea as to where you are so sweden yes so i live in sweden uh, in linshipping specifically and then we took a walk sort of near the neighboring town of 
sort of neighboring town of Narshipping, uh, which is, uh, has this um, amazing bay because it technically is on the sea, even though it's quite far inland. It has a very deep bay inlet. And then uh, okay. there's a, an outcrop of sort of granity stuff with trees on it. And there's lingonberries love to live on rocky soil, it seems. So there was lots of, lots of those there. I'm probably being very anti-sweet, uh, not anti-Swedish. No, I'm being very un-Swedish here because you're not supposed to tell anybody where the berries are, it feels like. Oh, you're not. <laughs> No, oh, so okay. oops, but uh, anyway, <laughs> it's a public trail. Someone's got to know. <laughs> Brilliant. And then you mentioned that um, you said from my PhD onwards, walking has been your main form of exercise. So what, what, what made the shift or what was it that kind of, yeah, what, uh, what was behind that distinction? It was sort of a, it was a very work-based rationale I guess um one was I didn't have a lot of money and I was trying to mm -hmm. pay off uh, debt and things with whatever I could get so I didn't want to take the bus um and I didn't want to spend a lot of money going to a gym um so for better or for worse I chose just to walk for as much of my commute as possible um I'd be, especially on my bike was dreadful and I didn't have the money to get a better one. So, um, I, it was, it was, I called it cricket cause it sounded like one. Um, wow. and, uh, so anyway, so I liked to walk and then, um, that just became a habit and became a really, a part of my day that I looked forward to rather than suffered through. Um, and when I started listening to podcasts, it became even more enjoyable and sort of the longer you go through a habitual path, the more you notice small details. Mm. And that can be just a really nice way to make life interesting, I guess. Yeah. I used I to have a berry patch in uh, England that I could go by in the summer that had uh, uh, brambles, but uh, the, they don't have those here, which is a shame. Uh, I've never, I've never had a lingonberry, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to look for. Or um, <laughs> so you know, so I don't, you've certainly not given it away to me because I wouldn't know what a lingonberry looks like. So I wouldn't, uh, be able to, I wouldn't be able to pick it and go, oh, look, there's a lingonberry. They, they look like red currants, but they taste like cranberries. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. They, you can get them at Ikea. You can get lingonberry jam. Uh, it's very, very bitter, um, uh, sour kind of flavor, but it's very popular here and it goes well with meat. Okay. All right. I will add that to my list then. Yes. <laughs> so I think my uh, one of my favorite walks... Um, uh, or most enjoyable walks was uh, so have you heard of a thing called street wisdom uh i mean i that sounds familiar but tell me because i'm not sure so it's it's the it's like a semi-organized walking event where um where you get together in a place normally in a city um rather than in the countryside um and you uh, you arrive for it's an activity that takes about two sort of maybe three hours um, and it's about um, walking and walking around the environment and, and getting some inspiration from the environment. So you begin with um, what's called the tune-up, and uh, I did the one that I'm remembering in particular is one that I did in Sheffield. Um, mm -hmm. It was just amazing. It was a wonderful um, experience because I arrived with a question that I wanted to answer, um, and I did the tune-up, which lasts about an hour, and then you're, you're let off to wander for an hour. So you're given a map. Mm. in a sealed envelope and you open it after 45 minutes to give you 15 minutes to get to um to get to the kind of final destination where you either have tea or coffee or, or a pint or a gin if that's whatever you, whatever kind of drink takes your preference really um 
and it was just one of the most profound walks I ever had. I learned mm-hmm. so much just kind of walking around and, and thinking about stuff that I needed to think about. And I went into it feeling really anxious and unsure and frustrated and cross about what was happening in some aspects of my life at the time. And I came out of it just thinking, just feeling a lot calmer afterwards, thinking, yeah, you know what? I've been asking the wrong, I went in asking a particular question, which was, should I get a job or should I keep on running my own business? And then um, I realized that it was the wrong question to be asking. The question I needed to be asking was, how can I run my own business and be a good husband and be a good dad? Um, mm. And that was the question that I needed to answer because I kept telling myself that getting a job would help, would like, allow me to be at home more. And, I thought, and as part of that walk, I thought, well, actually, no, it's only me that stops me being at home. And, you know, it's, so what is it that I need to do to change the way that I work so I can be a good husband and a good dad? So, yeah, that's exactly. great. Walking is great for that. It just gives you a lot of space to... Um, think and address things uh, however you want to do so and to, mm. you know it's hard to get stuck down a, a a spiral thought pattern that's unhappy because there's all these other things that you can focus on and pay attention to if you're not feeling great about it or you can have a really deep thought process and almost forget everything that's around you because we're so good at walking and so mm. yeah it's a wonderful activity and as a as a conversation analyst, and we'll, we'll unpick kind of a bit more about what that means um, in a bit, but as a conversation analyst, uh, sorry, I'll try that again. As a conversation analyst where what you're often doing is listening to or um, interpreting or recording other people's conversations, um, is that, does that part, in part contribute to kind of why you enjoy the, the solitariness of the walk? Um, I never thought about it as something to do with the CA, but it could be. I certainly, even though academic work can be very solitary at times when ultimately you do have to just commit to a lot of hours alone with data as much as you also spend a lot of hours working with data with other people and uh, reading their work and attending presentations and so forth. Uh, Mm. There is a lot of time that is solo but it's less solo when you work with recordings of what other people have been talking about. Um, So you're, you, and, but I often feel less like I'm eavesdropping on a conversation and like there's someone else in the room and more as if I'm listening to music Um, because data gets in my head with the exact Mm -hmm. inflection of how people said it. Um, And there's all sorts of bits of data that just lodge themselves like an earworm, uh, into me and and so it's as if there's a tune that plays on repeat once i've gotten to know a certain piece of data mm. i like that <laughs> i like that i like the the, the linking it to music because there is a musicality to speech in that way yeah absolutely especially when um, i mean when you're analyzing something in such detail you also tend to put it on loop so you just hear it again and again and again and again and um, it's like rehearsing an instrument almost. Uh, mm. You notice more the same way you get better at more details of the fingering or whatever uh, when playing piano, uh, the more times you go over one section. And so what, what is it about talk that fascinates you then? Uh, if that's not too broad a question. Oh gosh, I mean, there's so many things. So um, I, I find it amazing that we can do it at all. I think that when Harvey Sachs was sort of the founder of the field that I'm in, um, mm. he said that he, he cautioned at the beginning of one of his lectures 
don't worry about how fast they're speaking and try not to think, well, there's no way that they could know that and project that and do all of that on time and still deliver their own talking turn on time. He says, don't worry about that because they do it. And that's all that matters. We're just here to look at how they do it. But that Mm -hmm. mystery of how do we do that? And I mean, there's lots of neuroscientific work now on how that is possible in the brain, which is fantastic. But I just find that skill so fascinating to see deployed again and again and so much creativity in how people can use these skills that we learn completely by accident maybe not by accident but not with without with very little effort other than socialization through parenting and friends and teachers it's never something as far as i know that it is in any culture directly taught the only time we get close is maybe when people teach rhetoric but that tends to do with speeches and Mm-hmm. Not so much when people go back and forth. So I just think it's the most sort of majestic skill that we have as a human species, but also one that's so poorly understood. Uh, so you, uh, when you just said majestic, I love that. <laughs> one of the most majestic skills that we have as a human species. I've been watching too much Planet Earth, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so one of the things I said in my introduction was that... Um, uh, is talk is about words, but it's also about non-words as well. And, and that was mm. kind of where we began, wasn't it? When I contacted you through Twitter to say, um, can we, you know, can I interview for the podcast? Because I think it'd be really interesting to get into the, uh, into the really small, would you call them articles of speech? Oh, there's been a couple of different terms. Um, our project calls them non-lexical vocalizations, although that's a bit of a mouthful. Non-lexical um, vocalizations. Wonderful. Love that. Uh, All right. So we've got majestic I mean, and non-lexical vocalizations. Good. Yeah. Sounds or sound objects or sound tokens or just tokens, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes particles, although that's a more specific grammatical referent. Uh, and, and yeah, so even just sounds is fine. I mean we're kind of arguing against the entire field of linguistics that is cheerfully saying, well, this isn't a word. And so I don't care. Um, and what counts as a word and not a word is such a, a gray zone is such a difficult thing to define. Um, that I think a lot of the things we look at anyway in our non-word project and are, you know, are kind of words like whoops, whoops is in the dictionary. Mm. Um, so where do you draw the line? Uh, so anyway, so there's a lot of terms, um, Okay, but any, anything that, gets the, the idea across is totally fine. <laughs> okay. So sounds or, um, uh, what do you call them? Vocal, something vocalizations. Non-lexical vocalizations. Non-lexical. So as opposed to lexical ones, which are just words. Which are just words. Yeah. Okay. And because one of the things that um, I, I learned, at, I, I want to say quite an early time in my professional life, I think, mm. was, the, was the intake of breath sound. Oh, yeah. um, as a as a signal of I've got something that I want to say, um, and and I, I guess that would would that form in the in the non lexical vocalization camp, you know where where you're you, know, you might be you might have you might be speaking or you might have the floor as I have now, and then yeah. I would I would hear someone else go, <gasps> maybe not as accentuated as that because I've added you know I'm adding emphasis because it's a podcast recording. Um, yeah, yeah. When you hear that intake of breath, so like, oh okay that person wants to say something. And sometimes I literally stop. I don't know if literally is the right word, but I've said it now. Sometimes I would stop what I was. I stop my utterance and say, "Is there something you want to add?" And other times I might finish my utterance and get to a 
um, a point where it was kind of appropriate to bring that person in and, and share their um, uh, for them to get to share their thoughts or whatever mm. it is that, that might be going on as well. And I'm conscious that sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes somebody is just breathing. I just, yeah. you know, I've, I've heard the breath and thought it was, oh, I want to speak, but no, they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, um, I think uh, very linguisticky folk within the discipline would probably say that an in-breath doesn't count as a non-lexical vocalization. Um, oh, okay. Because uh, it's not a vocalization in the sense that it doesn't involve the vocal cords. <laughs> Um, ah, okay. But also because it it's um it's an in breath, it's ingressive, so and it's a it's basically sort of taking in the fuel that is required to do vocalizations. On the other hand, I'm not against pretty much anything being in this is just me personally, and this is so incredibly yeah, yeah. not a, a normal thing in linguistics or any linguistic related field. Um, even maybe CA to say that pretty much anything that we have available to us is communicative and a, and a, and a resource for doing stuff in life, um, including sometimes that you can use water that isn't part of your body. So pouring a liquid can be part of the communicative process. Um, boiling a kettle can be important because it's loud and so you might not be able to talk over it. This is a problem in my house all the time is someone will be sitting on the sofa and the other is near the boiling kettle and says, okay, stop, I can't hear you. Um, and to me, that isn't really just an environment interfering. It really is part of the social, envir the social environment and the social actions that we're doing. But then the breath, I guess, um, because it's looked at as sort of fuel is often not treated that way. Whereas I think it, it, it absolutely is. And as you say, we, we treat it as meaningful. We treat it mm. as doing action all the time. Um, there's, there's always that going on in meetings uh, or indeed in, in the data sessions where we're all analyzing data when somebody wants to take a turn to say a point, there's, there's, there's an in-breath and that mm. means that someone should probably wrap up what they're saying uh, or that even if it comes in a silence, someone's about to take a turn and it's a bid to say, I'm about to do this. Does anyone else want to not... Does anyone else have an objection to me talking now um, sort of thing? And if you do, you better hurry because I'm about to go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, there's a number of things that I want to unpick within that. So yeah. we, we talk, we've talked about conversation analysis and then we've abbreviated it to CA. So that's fine. No, that's right. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about, um, so I think we should define what that is then. Um, and we can sort of get into more detail about why you you might be going against some of the kind of general views around linguistics in terms of the um, the non-lexical vocalizations and or just other sounds that may be occurring in speech as to why that's different from what other um, researchers might be viewing or, or thinking or feeling at the moment. Um, but mm. the thing that I have to get out of my head before we move on is I I, I have very much been guilty of using a kettle to end a conversation that I don't want to have. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, that's a strategy. That's a strategy I've used to end to, or, or well, yeah, ideally to end, or if not to pause a conversation that I'm not enjoying or don't want to have. And, you know, I know my wife listens to this podcast now and again, so hopefully she's not listening to this particular bit. Because <laughs> then every time I pull the kettle thereafter, she's going to be like, hang on a minute, are you trying to stop a conversation you don't want to have? Yeah, exactly. Um, but but it, it, I, I agree with you. You know, it, the, and, and the timing of the kettle boiling is, is vitally important. 
Yeah. You know, if I was if I was doing some, not that I do, I don't record the interactions that we have at home, but it, you know, when when people do these things, there can be not always is, but there can be some real meaning behind the timing of of when those things uh, are done. Absolutely, right, that's, that's out of my head. I can I can move on now. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, right, so I mean, on. there's so much about the cat. I mean. In North America, kettles take longer to boil. So there's a different timing that you have to be aware of when using a kettle in different countries, which my husband and I often have to be used to because we travel so often between family and North America. As you can tell from my accent, I'm from Canada. Um, And then uh, living uh, in Europe in various places. And so, yeah, the, the, the different voltage means different contingencies to do with that noise. And we drink a lot of tea, so it's a really relevant uh, concern, but anyway, sorry, I'll leave it. I'll... <laughs> so, are we saying then, Emily, that we need to have another podcast episode specifically on kettles and their usage in speech? Oh yeah, <laughs> I think there should be a whole book on the the way tea kettles are involved in interaction. <laughs> All right, let's let's start with conversation analysis uh, slash CA as, as we've revisited. So, um, let's have you got like a working definition um, that you would use for for CA? Conversation analysis um, is the study of naturalistic uh, human interaction. Um, there are, people use increasingly different terms to talk about different components of that. So whether they're focusing on the body, the voice, whether they're looking at it at a workplace or whether they're looking at it at home. Um, mm-hmm. But any time that humans are doing things with each other that involves some kind of communication, I would say the majority look at uh, some kind of um, uh, interaction that's uh, synchronous, so it's at the same time, so a phone call or face-to-face interaction or indeed uh, over the internet like we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Or uh, there, there is also some people who look at uh, internet use, so instant chat, text messaging on phones, mm-hmm. uh, and even internet forums. Um, but the original look, use of it was to look at telephone calls and figure out what is the structure behind how regular, spontaneous interaction happens. How do people manage to have a conversation with each other without constantly interrupting and still have a nice time? How do they get their points across to each other? What are they doing? And how do they do things such as invite someone over for dinner or say, no, I'm busy? Um, Mm. How does that actually take place and what are the structures involved? Um, you could kind of look at it sort of what are the rules for interaction, but they aren't so much rules in a very strict sense, but in a, in the sense of we know what is expected. And when we don't do what's expected, we have to figure out some way of making that okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so also looking if, in that sense of rules, figuring out what are the rules for interaction. Okay. And, and what might be um, like a, a common example that would feature either in your data or gen- more generally in, in the field that we could share that would bring, that might bring it to life for people? Um, the, the, the sort of the first thing that people looked at um, and what is still probably the best example is greetings. Okay. Um, people say hello to each other and there's a reciprocal hello back. It happens in basically every single conversation people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and those greetings can take different forms uh, depending on how well you know the person or the kind of formality expected in the situation they might look different so they might be how how are you versus what's up 
those are all there. They happen across media. So they happen on the telephone. They happen on text messaging um, to a degree. So if you're starting a, an instant chat with somebody where it's like a, like a Facebook messenger where it isn't something you've had ongoing, mm -hmm. then you'll have a greeting. Whereas things where they're constantly ongoing, like my WhatsApp list or certain Facebook messages where it's just sort of an ongoing, I'll send a message and that's it. Maybe there won't be a greeting because there's this understanding that it's just an update on where we are. But yeah, anyway, thanks. so they, they'd say a greeting and there's one back. And that pair of things, um, those pair of turns is the basis on which all of our interaction is organized. Um, and by saying hello back, you recognize that we have now established an interaction has opened um, and that we are mutual participants in it. And then everything mm. else flows from there. And would that include the, the, um, the addition of the, how are you? I'm fine thing. So it would is be that sort part, of, is that part of greeting or is that a, a, an additional? Um, it, yeah. I mean, pairing? yeah, I would say it's probably the next expected pair in most conversation openings. So you okay. go from hi, hi to how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Then you say something about why you called or the latest news or something like that. And that's mm. sort of the expected sequence that we see when people are greeting each other for the first time of a day or the first time since they've seen each other. Um, and that kind of thing. Um, and the re I guess the reason that that's so central is in mm -hmm. part because it's really recognizable that we all do this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but also because it's those two, the fact that there's always two, there's a, there's a first and then there's a second and the way that they interlock with each other um, is how all the actions that we know about are essentially structured. So an invitation gets a response of some kind, whether it's an exception, uh, an exception or rejection. Or rejection, exactly. A request yeah. gets fulfilled or denied. Um, an offer is accepted or rejected to some degree. These are often not explicit and they can be embodied. So you can offer somebody a cookie by sort of passing over like offering the, the plate that has the cookies on it just physically mm -hmm. to them and they can kind of put up a hand to say nah and there doesn't have to be talking at all but yeah. there's still that reciprocal relationship and so uh, are those do, do things always occur in a pair so um, so for example we're, we're using the question and answer pair at the moment yeah um, but in talk to think is there always a pair there is almost always a pair. Um, ah, okay. Sometimes, there was, a pause and an, yeah. there was a pause and an infraction on almost, so that makes it interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, there, the pair can be split up in various ways. So sometimes, I think the stereotypical example of what we call an insert sequence um, is when I can only give the response when I find out some additional information. So uh, there's a recording of a shop or something um, and a kid asks for cigarettes and, he, and they, so the, the question, the initial request is, can I have a box of these cigarettes? And the shop owner says, are you 21? Um, and the kid says, no. And then the uh, shop owner says, then no. Um, so mm. that rejection of the request can only happen once something in between has been determined and established. Um, 
And then sometimes you can get certain things that don't get a response. And usually that is accountable, which means that somebody is going to say, well, that wasn't, they're going to indicate in some way that that wasn't expected for the lack mm-hmm. of, the lack of response was unexpected and that it's expected still and something should happen to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that can be if they're not paying attention, for instance. So if you pass over the biscuits and they're just looking out the window, you might have to actually tap them with the plate or say, hey, do you want biscuits? You might, you might have to go mm-hmm. to verbal means to get their attention. Um, and those kinds of additional efforts, such as tapping or speaking in that context, um, make accountable the lack of response that's happened so far. Okay. So if I was to think about, um, if I was to think about some interactions that I've had in the workplace then, where mm. I've, I've, asked my, I've asked my boss for an extension on a deadline for something. Yeah, so I've said, I'll get this piece of work to you by what, Wednesday at three. And then it's, you know, it's nine o'clock Wednesday and I'm looking at my diary going, man, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to get there. So, you know, I contact my boss and say, you know, is it possible I can get this to you on Friday instead? Mm. And then, and then the response is, why does it need, you know, why does it need to be Friday or what's happening or, um, you know, do you need some help or so that I'm not getting the answer that I'm not getting the, the, the second pair parts as it would, I think be um, known um, mm. immediately. I'm, I'm having to provide additional information to allow the, to allow the other interlocutor, my boss in this example, to, um, to have the information that they need to allow them to make, to give me the sec to, to give me the response to the, um, to the first part of the pair that I've put across. Yeah, exactly. So that would be an example of an insert sequence, basically. Okay. Yeah. And if I was to, as I have did, as I did recently for a project I was on, I was the, uh, I ended up being the chair of a, a reg. So there was a conference call that happened every other Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was carnage in, in terms of the, from a, com- from a, someone who understands conversation points of view, it was just a mess because um, there yeah. was lots of, lots of over talking and interrupting and oh. we, we, we didn't achieve very much and we would, you know, topics of conversation would change all the time. Um, but what I would often ask is, so we talk about a topic and then I would summarize it and say, right, so who's taken, yeah, so, so this is what we said, the action is this, who's going to do that action? Hmm. And then you have the tumbleweed moment then when, you know, the, the, when nothing, there's no, uh, there's no response. Um, I wasn't getting the, 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 the response in some way that then either ended up with me saying, okay, well, should we not do it then? And then because my, I'm then saying, well, if, if nobody's going to take the action, we won't do it to, to force someone to either go, yes, I'll take it or no, we're not going to do the action. Um, or uh, it would be, oh, well, that sits with me then. Um, and then invariably that would be, you know, if I say that sits with me, then that probably means I'm not going to do it. But at politeness, uh, I won't leave the silence hanging anymore. Um, I'll take the action and then try and farm it off on someone else later or it just won't yeah. get done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's not always going to be a direct yes or no. And there's not always going to be a really straightforward uh, second. Uh, there's not always going to be a straightforward response. It can be mm-hmm. very well, it would be better if such and such. And that can be a response. It's just maybe less direct or um, does additional work such as uh, trying to avoid 
um, giving somebody a, a response that causes them extra work or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of ways that this ends up being so much less straightforward than it initially seems, um, which also makes sense because nothing about what we do looks like it's straightforward. That's why it took so long for people. Well, one of the reasons was technology. There were no recording devices that researchers could afford, but Mm. also it looked as if there was nothing systematic about how humans talked in everyday life because the way that we responded or the way that we talked um, had so many different variations in turn design and what, uh, what kind of, responses we'd give to a question you know people could say things directly and indirectly they could do multiple actions at once they can use their body they can use their gaze and Mm. um, all of that adds a huge amount of complexity to the issue but it doesn't change the fact that ultimately we can find a pattern and and a system at work but it just it's hard to see at times because of our creativity and our flexibility in applying those responses Okay, so so I think then that's a a good start. Um, or I'll give the I'll give the positive evaluation of a good start to a working definition of what conversation analysis is. Um, <laughs> and so, but your interest, so, sorry, I said but, I didn't mean but. And your interest <laughs> in particular is, um, a, you said it's going against. It might go against the grain because of your interest in these non-lexical vocalizations slash sounds. Uh, yeah, I think it goes more against the grain of um, certain subfields of linguistics. Um, okay. I think in conversation analysis, as a topic, most people just don't care um, about defining what's a word and not a word and not a word because they're aware that people just use what resources are available to them, and that's great. And let's see what they do. Um, mm. A very inductive and open-ended approach to finding out what is relevant. Um, whereas linguistics has a history, um, at least significant portions of it, have a history of working with uh, written sentences um, or invented examples that try to get at what is prescriptively correct and incorrect, and thus what is the pattern of language that accounts for those correctness and incorrect uh, statement, like uh, gr- uh, grammatical statements. So whether or not something is grammatical or not, Um, whether or not something is a properly formed word or not, um, those have frequently been on very rigid contexts and very uh, strict examples of what counts as acceptable or not, Mm. what counts as correct grammar and what counts as uh, properly formed words and things. Okay. So within the broader field of linguistics, the, the focus has been on that. But within conversation analysis, there's there's more flexibility around whether it's a word or a non-word. It doesn't really matter, actually. What matters is that it's being used and, and it has meaning in some way. Yeah, it does something. It does some kind of action. And oh, so, it does something. Okay. Yeah. They, they, if it does, then great. That, let's look at it. <laughs> okay. And so what what gets you so passionate about the about these the, these bits of you know, these sounds and non-lexical vocalizations and things and what 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 is it about those that you're that particularly kind of interests or fascinates you um i really want to see more about how people coordinate their actions together especially in contexts where people are doing some kind of physical activity um mm-hmm. 
such as physical labor. I look at rock climbing, um, but there's also uh, board games and things. And um, these are sort of, they're quite, they're often quite complex tasks. Um, they're always face-to-face -face tasks um, and activities. And I'm curious about how people manage them. I think there's still uh, a really big portion of what we know about language is based on uh, slightly less complex environments. There's been a movement over the last 15 years or so to look uh, much more intensively at these uh, situations where we have physical co-presence with each other and how do bodies get used and how do objects get used. Um, and because of that, we also haven't done a lot yet. We're starting to do that a lot more now in the last few years to look at how the voice combines with the body um, and how they are intertwined together um, mm -hmm. rather than just that the body has a lot of regularity and uh, we can do lots of things with our body uh, as well, which is definitely really fascinating. But then how do we put all this into a bigger whole um, and look at something a little bit more holistically? Mm. Because I, I read your paper, because you did the paper with, it was, it was with Jessica, wasn't it? Jessica Robbers on the, the games, on board games. Yeah. Because um, that, that was what first got me into following, I, that's how I first found you, as it were. Because I, oh, yeah. I saw the article and I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. I want to go and have a read of that. Um, and the, the reason that I was really interested in it was because the, and it may be that I, I stretch things too far sometimes, but what you described just now about people coming together to achieve, uh, you know, to do something, people coming together to play a board game or to do rock climbing or whatever that might be. For me, there's a big similarity with when people get together in the workplace to achieve things. So when, yeah. whether that be for the, you know, the conference calls that they have on a weekly or daily basis, the meetings that take place, the project teams that, that come together. And there's all of this talk that happens in those, um, in those things. And what gets focused on is the, you know, the, the, the actions that come out of it or the, um, or maybe who speaks the most or, you know, who, who kind of controls the floor in that way. But actually there's so much more that goes on that mm -hmm. I think is just out of people's awareness that mm -hmm. was kind of what was behind me wanting to get you onto the podcast and to say, well, why do these things matter? So that, mm -hmm. you know, our fair listener then is able to, to start to, to think about how do they notice or um, how do they notice these things more and then think about not necessarily to analyze them and pick them apart, but just to notice them more and be more aware of, of how, how these things are used as part of interaction to do things or to mm -hmm. make meaning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm doing one right now, which is an unlike civil vocalization where I keep saying, mm, um, mm. Which, is, <laughs> uh, which is necessary to promote um, you to continue taking your turn. Um, mm. Without thinking about it, I'm able to put those, now I'm going to start thinking about it. Yeah, but put them in the previously, right <laughs> not thinking about it. Um, I'm putting them at moments where there's a possibility that maybe I could have jumped in with a turn. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm foregoing that I'm saying, no, I I'm, I'm with you and I'm not taking a turn. Uh, you may, you may and should continue your turn. Mm. Um, and those sounds, um, are really important for supporting somebody telling about something that's longer than the standard quick. How are you? Those things can happen in quick back and forth succession. But when we tell stories or when we, uh, 
have meeting agendas to get through and things. Um, there can be much longer turns and we need to uh, use other tactics to still show attention and show our commitment to that ongoing turn hasn't just flagged because it's been so long. So basically because it's abnormal um, in the sense of what the, the base system is good at doing, which is back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, there are practices that we use to take care of that and to say, okay, no, but even though that's the base system, we're working with these extra things to make it work, uh, such as, mm, and you're going to take a longer turn. And is, um, oh, I swallowed that. And I was like, oh, look, that's a swallow. There's a signal that I want to take a turn. Um, <laughs> so it, and I guess that's one form or one, not form. So that's one way that the um, non-lexical vocalizations can be used. So we, you, know, you said earlier on that non-lexical vocalizations can be used to do things. So mm -hmm. the ums and the mm-hmm and the aha uh -huh, uh -huh, and all of those good things can yeah. be used as ways to signal to the person who's taking their turn and um, can you know, continue, I want you to carry on and you have, a, you, know, you have my consent or permission to, to, to do so. How else, uh, in, you know, in the research that you've done or more broadly, how else do you find that these non-lexical vocalizations or these sounds are used? What else do people do with them? They're really good at um, portraying something as happening in a way that is spontaneous and genuine. And that might sound really abstract. Um, Sally Wiggins is another researcher here at Lynchping University and has a couple of really great papers on how people make sounds during mealtimes. Um, mm. One of the things, exactly. <laughs> um, and I mean, when your mouth is full, for starters, you can't talk or you're not supposed to. Um, and even if you... I was going to say, my, my daughter does <laughs> Yeah, she, she doesn't know that yet. Uh, she hasn't accepted that, um, perhaps. Uh, but, but there's, we, we socialize each other not to do that. And in part, that's also dangerous. If you talk while you're eating, you can choke. Um, mm -hmm. but you can go, mm, 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 and things while eating. And it can happen the moment you taste the food. So you don't have to chew and then say, oh my gosh, that was delicious. Um, so there are things that you can do right away. And for some reason, um, these non-lexical sounds uh, are very good at doing that. They can, they happen when all sorts of sudden events occur. So when you're in pain, it's very common to have a non-lexical vocalization like ouch or, yeah. or ooh, or something like that. Um, or in the board games, ah, oh, um, which are more sort of mental agony. Uh, mm. And those tend to occur right after the event um, is noticed. Uh, and because of the fact that they don't have to take a specific form, perhaps, um, they can appear more spontaneously, um, and they sound more genuine in a way. It's not exactly clear why, but they're treated by other people as being a more genuine indication of pain or joy or whatever, um, because uh, perhaps... Um, they're so embodied. They're so just the release of sound is so spontaneous and is so uncontrolled and un or disorganized um, that it must be based on just pure outburst. Mm. This isn't really, this is still 
how people treat it because it's not actually true. We absolutely control when we do them. Yeah, I was um, going to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, such as waiting until the event happens, even when you can see it coming a mile away. Um, and there's all sorts of fantastic studies of people in doctor's offices who are reporting pain, and they will only make the sound at certain specific moments of being touched or manipulating the limb, even though they may be in actual pain the whole time from say tennis elbow or uh, a broken arm or whatever, they make the pain at the correct moments during the doctor's examination because that's when they need to portray the pain is relevant, that the doctor is doing something that's causing the pain. And therefore we've reached some kind of diagnostic importance about what the doctor is doing, where they're touching and things. Um, and if they just made pain sounds the whole time, they would not be useful interlocutors for getting that diagnosis done. Mm. So they're really handy for dealing with those spontaneous um, explosions of affect and being treated as some kind of effectual indication, um, even if they might not be literally a barometer uh, or, a th or a thermometer or whatever uh, of the what we might be experiencing at any given moment. They're still really social and organized into a system and into a structure in order to get social work done, not just as literally a, a, a direct link into what our emotions might be at the time. Mm. When you were describing the examples uh, earlier on, um, mm. and then you, you, know, you, you talked about being spontaneous, and you said, but actually they might not be. Um, and I said, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Um, and I was remembering some, uh, a, where was it? Who was I with? Um, there was the, there was like a ritual where if, if one person in particular, and interestingly, it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the most senior person in the hierarchy. So it wasn't necessarily the, you know, the most senior person in the room, but it was the person who had been in the organization the longest. So they had their long, the longest kind of tenure as it were mm. that when, when they spoke, so when they took a turn at talk, then um, the the ex the expected, or it, would, it appeared to me anyway, the expected thing to do was to do a sagely nod, and yeah. uh, and uh, all that's interesting kind of noise, and I, I would I would depict that as mm. yeah, so yeah, they're, yeah. so they're they're making a point, and you need to do that. Mm, yeah, so really, you you you're doing the the, the signs that communicate oh, that's a really good point I hadn't thought of that well you know kind of well done want of a better phrase um and and uh, uh, it was something that I noticed and I thought was really fascinating because actually I didn't think their utterances were all that profound if I'm honest um mm -hmm. but the expect but it seemed to be that the expectancy was that when that person made a um made their contribution that the expectation was we need to do a sagely nod and a hmm that's really mm. interesting. You have a really good point that you've made there. Yeah. I kind of wish I had that person when I did my talks. Um, that, <laughs> I mean, as an example of how these things are, there's an expectation with how you do them. Mm. Um, I have known uh, a professor who shakes their head when listening to people. Um, not all the time, but sometimes. And I've never asked them whether for sure this is the case, but Observing over a couple of years, it appears that shaking the head is an indication of following along, and that was interesting. Um, rather than, I completely disagree, that's terrible, I'm going to say something later. But it mm. looks like it's, I completely disagree. And so it's really freaky 
to be the one talking and see them shaking their head at the back of the room and thinking, oh God, what have I done? This is going to go terribly. <laughs> um, and so you, kind of, you still have to follow the expectations. Otherwise, you can create these confusions potentially. Mm. And, and I guess, is, is there something about if you, if you break that expectancy, if you don't play along, does that communicate something in its own right as well? So whether that be, we talked earlier on about the pairs, and if you don't give the second part of the pair, or if there's an expectation for you to, you know, when you take your mouth full of food, for you to do that, mm, 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 type <laughs> thing. If you don't do those things, are they, or, or could they be kind of signals of, of somebody's, I guess, stance towards it? I think they're treated that way. Um, so when people have an absent response, it's treated as um, a likely indication of what people call a dispreferred response, which is usually something to do with rejection or criticism or um, denial or something like that. Um, okay. Or if it's to do with the food that they might not really like it that much or something like that. Um, so dispreference is a, a structural expectation that comes when the normative uh, response isn't coming. Um, and uh, as opposed to just being no or something like that, it's a bit more uh, complicated. But uh, yeah, it can, be, it can be taken that way. I think it can be treated that way. Okay. So for, I guess for the, for the listener then, thinking about um, the, the interactions that they might be having, whether they be, I guess, would you include over email? Would, would you, because uh, you've got that delay in response, would, is there, would, would the conversation analysis look at stuff over email as well? Some people do, yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, so they, they definitely find differences in what occurs and how, how it occurs, but um, ulti ul ul I, I gather that it's still, you know, that a response is expected for most uh, uh, moment, moment mo after our first email, there's some kind of response typically expected. Mm. Um, I mean, I definitely wonder when that response uh, relevance ends. I am probably guilty of sending way too many thanks emails um, after it's pretty clear that the, the email chain should have closed and I'm just continuing. So people probably think I have to have the last word and it's just because I really am not sure if the conversation has closed um, yet. Uh, closing can be really tricky. And I think it's even trickier over email and, in, and instant chat and things because it's not always evident given that you have this record of the interaction that can kind of be picked up again at any point because talk and, and the, the body are completely ethereal. They, they literally vanish into time and space. Um, yeah. 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 Done them. In that way. yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, email and instant chat don't, you just have that as a list. And so, um, it's possible to just send messages whenever you feel like and restart that conversation from where you left off in a way that you can't really do and talk. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, sorry, see, I, I started asking a question and then I asked the second one instead. So I started <laughs> to ask. Um, if, um, so for, for our fair listener then, thinking about um, the interactions that they have, whether they be over email, uh, over the phone, um, you know, WhatsApp, and then I guess primarily I was thinking in, in those um, 
whether it be meetings or, or conference call type things, what, what would be the things that you would encourage the listeners to, to notice or to maybe listen out or look out for? Um, I mean, one of the things that's challenging for my line of work is it can be very difficult to write non-lexical vocalizations into an email. Um, they're typically mm. not relevant because it's a written medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I love to write non-lexical sounds into an email, but they're treated as very informal uh, and non-business-like. So that might not always be appropriate. Um, I think one of the things that I have encouraged people in the past to do with emails is that if you want a response, end with a question and end with the question that you want them to deal with first, um, because Mm -hmm. that's what people will usually do, rather than, I mean, maybe you could include best wishes or thanks or whatever, name sign, but... Um, getting as close to the end of the email before the signature as possible with a question, I think, see, in, in my anecdotal <laughs> experience, <laughs> seems yeah, to increase response relevance. Um, and so you might be more likely to get an answer. Um, but then, yeah, I don't know if there's actually, if there's research on how to end emails specifically uh, and how to know when an email has ended because I could use that in my life um, to know that (laughs) for sure Um, and I think yeah emails are interesting because you have this sort of traceable accountability so you can always go back and say well we said this before but now we're saying this or Mm. hang on I asked this question you haven't gotten to it could I reintroduce that and it's very it's kind of easier to do that I think over email yeah Okay, and uh, and in either in kind of either stuff that's mediated over the phone or in face to face meetings, being to look out for or notice there. Um, ums and ahs are just so great. I feel really sad uh, when people try to avoid them or say that they have to be cut out um, because they're really important punctuation markers in in speech, and they help us know when how the turn taking is occurring and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also, there's so many interesting facets of the voice that we can use um, that are not often talked about in, that that I've seen in in training that are things such as uh, uh, how you can use creaky voice and how you can use um, high pitch or low pitch Mm. or really strange sounding kind of voices. And they all have, uh, their job uh, in talk um, mm-hmm. and they're really useful um, so we can use laugh tokens and things like that so we can intersperse uh, talk with laughter mm-hmm. um, like in that and people tend to do that um, when dealing with delicate topics put broadly uh, and the same with creaky voice so people will talk a lot about vocal fry and there's this overlap between vocal fry which is a sort of constriction and lowering of the vocal core uh, vocal sound um especially in females um mm-hmm. and it overlaps a lot with creaky voice it's not quite the same but creaky voice has a really specific set of uh, in, uh actions that it can do in um in talk and uh it, such as uh also punctuating where you are in the turn and it tends to happen towards the trail off of turns but it can also um deal with delicate talk uh, so when people recommend against using creaky voice and things like that, all of these prescriptive terms about how we're supposed to sound kind of sanitize and neutralize 
the amazing resources that we have at our disposal to do different mm. actions, which is such a shame. So I guess being more open to uh, what we might think of as non-standard talk and seeing what it does rather than a, a strict adherence to sort of robot sounding voice. And what's creaky voice? Creaky voice is uh, that cracky sound in the, uh, that I've got okay. there. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it sounds like a door creaking a little bit. Okay. I speak with a lot of creaky voice, so it's almost, I'm, I'm trying now not to speak with it and to be a little bit clearer, <laughs> but I speak with a no, lot of creaky right. voice. Um, so listening to me prior to what I'm saying right now would probably, I think I did it on right now a tiny bit, uh, would be an, a good indication of non-creaky voice sound. Whereas now okay. I'm kind of throwing it in a bit more. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, it, it, that's useful. Thank you. I wasn't... Um, oh, yeah. I, it's, I, I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be... I wanted to make sure I was clear about what you meant because I wasn't sure if it, if it was something else, but no, that's good. That's, mm. that's good clarification. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, earlier on you mentioned... Um, uh, so you said you mentioned, you mentioned a colleague, I can't remember her name, Mm. Should have written it down and I forgot. Um, who's done some research into uh, non-verbal escalizations in, was it dinner when eating? Yeah, these are interactions at mealtimes, especially Interactions at mealtimes. Um, so would you be able to, um, after we finish, just send me over some links then to, um, to that. And I guess any other kind of areas that I, I suppose we talked about today. So if there's any initial kind of Harvey Sachs papers that you think might be useful for people to have a read of, I could put links in the, uh, in the show notes across to them. Uh, and, or if there's any, any other areas that we've discussed that you think, you know what, that would be if the listener wanted to find out more, then we, one of the things I like to do in the show notes is to put together a, a bank of, of resources or references that, that people can head off to. Yeah, um, absolutely. To find out more if they want. Um, yeah, the, the, absolutely. No problem. There's, there's work by the Stoko. There's work by Sally Wiggins is the name of the person from before. Mm -hmm. Um, if people are really keen, there is a, a very, um, it's a very academic book, but it certainly covers a lot of stuff that is very based on emotion, which is how sound tokens such as O and ah are used, um, to portray certain types of emotion and how they overlap with different phonetic features, like the ones that I was just talking about. Um, so that's a really interesting book by Elizabeth Raber, and so yeah, there's lots of oh things yes, like that. please. I've not heard of that one. I'd like to have that one. Affectivity and interaction. Um, Affectivity and, and interaction opens yeah. his generic online shopping up. <laughs> okay, fab. So I, I've um, I, so similarly, I would recommend um, uh, Elizabeth Stokoe's book Talk: The Science of Conversation. That's good. Um, yeah, uh, she yeah she deals with a number of different things in there. I particularly like when she talks about trouble and dealing with trouble. Yeah, um, absolutely. I like, I like her trouble chapters. They're, um, they're good. Uh, okay. Um, and, and any other recommendations in terms of reading or other people to kind of search out that the listeners might be interested in doing? Wow. It's 80 pounds. I've had to see interaction. I'll have to oh, I know. Isn't it? It's, it's really, it's, you know, I think it's a John Benjamin's book or something like that. It's nuts. Um, I might check out the local university library as probably yes, the I best do that, place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of them have agreements with local communities to let people read in, in the library and stuff. So, um, that would be the best way or email Elizabeth and see if she can pass over articles or something. Um, yeah. Okay. Hopefully she's not going to be mad at me for saying, I think she'd be delighted to have people interested. So I don't think, um, but anyway, 
Okay. It's not and, 200 and at once. <laughs> I, I've also now feel guilty because I've, I have now communicated that I was blatantly looking at my, uh, at my online shopping app rather than listening to you when we oh, when no, I should no. have been wholly attentive. So I'm sorry about that. That was poor practice. On my I part. think it's par for the course sometimes with digital interaction. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> um, there's certainly lots of stuff in the, in the, phone call data about different ways that other activities get interspersed with what people are doing on the phone. Mm. So that's really neat. Okay. Um, it might be a dreadful self plug, but I have a YouTube video that might be helpful on introducing oh, CA. Um, oh, please. <laughs> so I'll send that one, but I yeah, feel it's, yeah, it's, I'm always really self-conscious about plugging that. No, plug it, plug away. Plug <laughs> away. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, it'd be great to have that. That'd be really good. Yeah, that'd be really good. Okay, so uh, to, to I guess to pull us together and wrap us up, then are there are there any other? I, so one of the things I commonly ask guests is, are there any myths that you'd like to kind of dispel, or any myths that you'd like to um, to put to bed around talk and or you know these non-lexical vocalizations? Anything that you would that you think would be really important for the listeners to know? Um, I mean, I talked a little bit about prescriptive language and how it's maybe not the most scientific or the most useful way of approaching language. And I think uh, an example of that as applies to the non-lexical sounds um, is people will pretty easily say that wah, wah, as like a documentation that I am very poor at is not a word. Um, but then if people say quack, it is a word. And in fact, it's a standardized word in English, but then in other languages, they don't say quack, they say other things. Um, mm. as their sort of onomatopoeic standard word to indicate a duck call. And there can be things in between. And you can also describe it as a duck quack, um, which is just a set of words to describe the sound rather than do the sound. Mm. Um, and those kind of differences show how arbitrary it is, whether something is a legit word uh, or mm. whether it's something that uh, might not be traditionally considered a word, but is completely effective if, especially if you're better at impersonating ducks than I am, um, <laughs> at conveying duck or whatever. Um, mm. And sometimes you really want to do those kinds of uh, those kinds of things. So if you're in pain, you generally don't want to say, "I'm I, oh this this hurts." Sounds far less distressed than "ow ow ow ow," um, mm. which is much more urgent. So uh, that's something I look at in the rock climbing uh, activities. Is people use those. Uh, kind of they, they use grunting sounds uh, and, yeah, and yeah. like tennis grunt sounds and things um, to indicate that they might be about to fall uh, any second now that it's so anyway there are all these resources and I feel sometimes like the language uh, that the language myth is to say well no only certain ones are acceptable and I think it's more a matter of judging your audience and judging your genre um, mm -hmm. you don't put on lexical sounds very often into written text um, especially not at work, but you might do it with friends and you certainly do it in interaction face-to-face. -face. So um, it sh one shouldn't worry if people are using tons of them. They're, they're, they're exciting. Fabulous, wonderful, thank you. Um, so one of the things that I know I use is I use an asterisk around um, something. So if I want to say <laughs> hello, I'll then do asterisks and then write the word waves and then another asterisk. Yes, exactly. You know, or face palm, or um, or other things. Um, and I, who's who's been talking about emojis and gifs? Is that you? 
I mean, I rant about it on Twitter plenty, but uh, I, there's a paper by, Tol I think it's by Tolens, uh, that I can send that talks about GIFs as a form of interaction online. Oh, yes, please. Of, yeah, it's a great paper. Yeah, I'd love that. That'd be really good. That'd be really good. Okay, I'm going to put us together and wrap us up then. So um, is there anything else then, Emily, that you're thinking, feeling, or want to say? Uh, this has just been really lovely. I feel very excited. What, a, what an awesome way to start the morning to talk about these sorts of things. I, it, it's an amazing opportunity, so thank you. Oh, no, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been uh, fascinating. I feel, I feel like we could have gone on for, for an awful lot longer as well. Uh, yeah. There were a number of other aspects that, that we picked up along the way that we've kind of left on, left, left on the wayside. So, um, mm. But no, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been wonderful to, um, to have you on. And thank you so much for, for giving your time. Thank you so much for hosting and being so interested. It's been great. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, edited, and presented by Phil Wilcox. For more information, why not visit our website, emotionatwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not join the community at community.emotionatwork.co.uk, where you'll find other resources such as videos, blogs, articles, research, plus all the previous podcasts. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>